You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I'm your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is my co-host, I suppose, uh, freelance writer Tom Chick. Uh, before we start, I'd like to ask you, Troy, if yeah. I can get you a coffee. That is a great idea, but I've had enough coffee today, and now I'm into the Chardonnay. Uh, well, I can't help you there. You're on your own. Well, I've got one. I'm fine. Thank you. But I appreciate the offer. How are you, Tom? Oh, I'm, I'm very well. I, I have a nice shot of espresso here. Uh, I'm really psyched about who we have today. I think this guy has done uh, a great job, and uh, I'm looking forward to picking his brain a little bit. Yes, we have a special guest today, and our guest is Chris Park, the designer of AI War Fleet, Fleet Command. Fleet Command, AI War Fleet Command, uh, from Arkin Games. Chris, thanks for joining us. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for having me. And by the way, Chris, the part of the name that always messes me up is I never remember, is it just one AI war or is it multiple AI wars? <laughs> I know. That messes up a lot of people. <laughs> so which is yeah, it? It's AI war. It's singular. You've got a bunch of the uh, advanced wars and all that sort of thing, and there actually is another AI wars game that's unrelated to us that I oh, discovered right. belatedly. I, and <laughs> yeah, I remember stumbling across that. Now, surely you have dwarfed those guys in terms of like Google hits, right? Like if have we buried them yet? Yeah, I feel bad about that, but yeah. No, you don't. No, you don't feel bad about it. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to shut anybody else out, but when I originally was searching for a title for the game, uh, you know, AI War was the obvious title given the focus, and uh, so I, you know, was searching for it, and I was finding some books on Amazon and so forth, and it's like, okay, great. There's no games that are that are named this way, and then. A uh, month after release, find out, oh, there's AI Wars, and Google wasn't bringing it up when I searched Singular. It's like, ah, oh, great. <laughs> but technically, you're in the clear because you are just about the one war. This other game is apparently about multiple wars. It's very nonspecific, whereas you, this is the AI Singular War. That's right. So. <laughs> well, there we go. I, I think it's like Total War. It's a state of war with AI. It's yeah, <laughs> the Hundred Years War or something, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad we have that settled. Uh, so, Chris, why don't you tell us a bit about AI War for the uninformed in the audience? This is an independent sci-fi real-time strategy game. Uh, why don't you give our listeners a bit of a rundown as to what they could expect if they were to download it or play it, and then we can get into some discussion over some of the finer points on it. All right, sounds good. Um, so, the generality of it is that it... Controls, like an RTS, um, it's very similar in controls to like Supreme Commander or some of those other ones with the dynamic camera and, you know, kind of an automatable economy, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, a lot of the activities um, on the surface seem very, you know, RTS-like. You gather resources and you, uh, you know, construct, you know, fixed position stuff as well as mobile stuff, you know, buildings versus, versus mobile units, and uh, you move them all around. Um, the, <clears throat> where the main differences come in is the uh, scale of the game is just uh, really high uh, compared to most other RTSs. It's more along the lines of uh, um, Star Wars Empire at War. Uh, you know, they had a big multi, uh, you know, basically you're playing the entire galaxy there, right. and uh, you've got all these different uh, battlefields and so forth, but it's the... With most of those games, like the Total War series as well, the um, outside um, 
you know, larger map is all turn-based, um, and what I did was make this completely real-time. Um, so you wind up fighting on all these different uh, battlefields simultaneously, um, and, uh, you know, you can have 30,000, 60,000 plus units moving around at once. Not you, the player, but the entire game uh, often contains that many. So you, the player, might have, you know, a few thousand up to maybe maybe 10,000 or more, depending on, you know, how well you're doing. <laughs> um, and um, there's a lot of grand strategy in there with, you know, choosing your targets and moving around and so forth because you can't just conquer everything because we've got a unique AI progress um, metric there that basically uh, the AI, it's, it's kind of a David and Goliath scenario where you've got uh, – the AI outnumbers you, you know, 10,000 to one at the start. You know, they they start out with around 20,000 ships. You start out with, like, six. And uh, so if they were aware and cared, you know, they'd crush you instantly. Um, and so it's a very asymmetrical sort of thing uh, where you – rather than me simulating a um, – a single opponent, like a chess opponent, where you know you and your opponent sit across from each other and you have equal stuff and you have a contest of wills. What I'm more am simulating is a um, entire host of opponents, kind of like um, an entire level, for, um, like a first-person shooter level, where uh, there's you with your gun in this first-person shooter, let's say, and then there are you know, a hundred or thousand enemies out there, and uh, they all have kind of individual AI, and when you encounter them, then they do what they do, and uh, are, you know, aware of you and will fight you, but, you know, if, if all of the thousand guys in one level of, you know, Half-Life or something knew exactly where you were and were, you know, uh, just to run at you, you'd, you'd never survive that, right? That would be... Uh, that would be just ludicrous. So what this is really doing is it's making a battlefield simulation, not a war game simulation in the, in the same sort of sense. So it's kind of a different premise in a lot of ways. And so you get all this asymmetry um, in, the, in the way that the game plays of the humans versus the AI. It's uh, one to eight players, um, so you can play co-op, um, but it's always against the, the AI. So... Um, that's the, the generality of it. And there's some tower defense bits in there as well. And, um, there's some turn-based strategy influences, even though it's all real time. Uh, you know, Civ 4 was certainly, a an influencer for some of the pacing and the way that the player kind of can set the tempo a bit and, uh, so forth, but... Because how would you compare this to, uh, say, Sins of the Solar Empire, which is the obvious uh, corollary and reference point for a lot of uh, strategy gamers for the last couple of years? It is also a sci-fi RTS. It still has node movement uh, between planet systems like uh, AI War has. Uh, how would you compare the two? Um, you know, I'm never a real great one to ask about that, honestly, because I've played the demo of Sins of the Solar Empire for about 30 minutes, and it didn't <laughs> it didn't grab me when I was looking for another RTS, and so I why not moved on. Um, well, mainly the pacing on that one, and I and I looked at it and I said, well, um, the things that you know, no disrespect to that team either. It's obviously a, a wonderful game with a, a large following. I just didn't feel like it was for me, and a large part of that was one the pacing which I understand you can increase, but also, two, uh, 
the planets all seemed very empty. You can build your, from what I understand, from what little I've played, you can build your kind of defenses wherever you want to, and then there's a certain number of, like, large ships that you move around, and uh, it just felt very, like, kind of empty pools of water to me around each planet, and you go from one to the next, and I I felt like there wasn't going to be a whole lot of long-term variety, especially against the AI, and, uh, you know, it seemed to also emphasize kind of capital ship... uh, combat where you've got some really large ships that you customize and that you very much micromanage the individual ships as far as giving the you know activating special abilities or customizing loadouts or you know doing whatever else with those whereas you know I'm really much more of a fan of like Age of Empires or Empire Earth or um you know Supreme Commander um things like that where you're managing groups of guys and uh where there's a, a large variety of, of terrains and uh, different possible scenarios, uh, you know, based on that terrain. So um, that that was more what I was looking for, and so it just wasn't a match for me. So, you know, I really feel like uh, it's a lot closer to Sins of the Solar Empire in space, if you want to make a real cross-comparison there. I think that would be probably the closest. Um, but certainly I've heard... Uh, some people compare sins just because it's also got kind of a 4x element and uh you know uh the, the main comment that i've gotten is that you know people like the 4x element in ai war better those that have talked about it to me um but uh you know i can't say one way or the other <laughs> so if i could if i could jump in having played both games i i, I think the when people talk about sins as a 4x game that they're that's that's sort of a reach. I mean, there yeah. it's more that it plays on a bigger scale. But but Sins of a Solar Empire is very much a conventional RTS in many regards, and that's not a slam at all. They no, do not great not. at capturing the the essence of a conventional RTS. But what they don't do, and I think what what your particular challenge is, Chris, AI War really is not like any other RTS. I mean, it's interesting listening to you sort of prioritize when when you introduce the game. Like, what features to mention first? Like, if I was in charge of you as, like, your marketing dude, uh, I would be like, yeah, you know, mention the 10,000 units. That's really important. Uh, You know, mention uh, the AI and stuff. Um, But I I think the tough part for you is where you end up hooking a guy like me who's really into real-time strategy games and who's seen a lot of different ones uh, is this whole dynamic you have about, uh, and it's interesting listening to you compare it to an FPS, where you're just this small guy and you're you're on a level, you know, a map. You're on a, a big area with 10,000 other bad guys and you've got to work your way through this huge army. You, you use the word host and I think of like host meaning armies. Uh, you have to work your way through that and, and you have to be very, you have to play it almost like an insurgent in that you can't push too hard because they'll push back harder. Uh, and no other RTS really has that dynamic. Uh, and, and that, to me, is what makes AI War really special and absolutely unique. As far as I know, and I'd be curious if you would agree with this, Chris, I don't think anybody else has really done that in an RTS. Like, have you seen that? What, what inspired that mechanic? Um, you know, it kind of came about organically. Um, really, I was looking at inspirations outside of... Uh, 
outside of that, um, and outside of the RTS genre, I, I don't think there's anything anybody else that does that in strategy gaming. Um, the main thing that was an inspiration was it, it, my favorite book is Ender's Game, and uh, I, I really wanted to create something that would give me the feel of that. And obviously, the the battles and so forth that are described in Ender's Game are pretty simplistic by, you know, RTS standards. Um, you know, there's a lot of micromanagement and, and, and neat things for the book, but it just, I don't think, would really translate well to an actual game. So I wanted to kind of make something that... But, but what I liked, I guess, from... Orson Scott Carr's descriptions of uh, of his stuff was the fact of okay you've got these guys that have been launched uh, a long time ago out into various hostile planets way off with some number of ships with them and then they're kind of on their lonesome there and they need to go fight and they're usually outnumbered so they have to play smarter than or you know they have to fight smarter rather than their opponents and uh, you know you've got um, all of it, you know, as the commander, as Ender or whoever, you've got all of the um, these different battles that are kind of going on simultaneously or kind of in succession, but in really different parts of you know the universe, essentially. And so, I started out with kind of a warp mechanic like that. I didn't actually have any wormhole connections at all at the start. It was a, a warp type thing, and you know, you sent your guys out there, and then they would arrive at some certain amount of time later, and then you would fight then and have to deal with it. And there were a lot of reasons that didn't work out very well, and so it turned into something with wormholes, which that idea also did not come from sins. I was thinking of the Forever War when, when I did that. I was like, you know, that's how they did it in the Forever War. Let's, let's handle it that, that way here. And, um, you know, so it, it kind of came about organically from, you know, starting from this premise of I want to kind of feel like Ender without actually doing what Ender's game described. And I, I want it to play like the games that I like to play because I like the mechanics of Supreme Commander, Age of Empires, etc. Those mechanics are refined, they're comfortable, I really like them, but I want to do something else with those same mechanics. And uh, so... Then it was just a matter of you know playtesting and iterative development and kind of uh, backing into the design by saying okay you know what is working what's actually fun what's not fun and you know, every week there would be another build of you know uh, different ideas and you know tossing out the stuff that wasn't fun from the week before and putting in new stuff that was fun and you know eventually it all kind of came together with some overarching design but it was very much you know i couldn't have thought of this in advance which i think is <laughs> a, a key thing for any anything that's going to be innovative you don't try and think of it all in advance if you can think of it in five minutes or 30 minutes or you know two weeks of writing on paper it's probably not that unique um <laughs> You know, you, you've got to go through that iterative cycle and, and make, you know, a thousand things that stink before you make finally <laughs> something that is actually good out of that, you know. So that's now, kind of the you, process that I went through. <laughs> can you explain for us? I'm sorry, is it Arkin? Ar, what, what's Arkin, you, Arkin, yeah. <laughs> uh, what does Arkin consist of? Is it basically sort of like you and your garage? Do you have people around the country? Uh, uh, but explain to us, who is Arkin? 
Okay, so it started out as just me um, before Arkin ever actually existed. I was working on, you know, I've been into game design and doing hobbyist stuff and mods and this, that, and the other for a long while. Um, most of it not publicly released, but, uh, y- you know, I've been doing it since I was around 11. Um, and um, so I'd been working on another game, uh called uh, Alden Ridge, which is like a zombie puzzle-type game. Um, it's kind of a roguelike, kind of an adventure game. It's it's another kind of cross-genre mashup-type thing. And uh, so I was working on that, and you know I've had a, a long-standing uh, weekly RTS session with my dad, my uncle, and one of my uncle's colleagues. And um, you know, so every week, twice a week, we play some RTS game, and we usually play it for 6 to 12 months and then get tired of it and play something else. And uh, when that cycle came around in mid-2008, there was not anything else that I really wanted to play at that particular time that that met all the criteria that I had. And so I was like, well, why don't I put this other game that I've got on hold and just make the RTS game that we want to play? So that's what I did. And so in November 2008, I started actually coding that. And, uh, you know, within a couple of weeks, it was playable to the point where we could, you know, make that our weekly thing. And so, you know, we went through that whole cycle. And uh, around in March of uh, this year, 2009, um, I met and uh, and basically contracted the composer for the game, um, who's a guy from UNC Chapel Hill that uh, my sister, who's big in the music department there, knew. And then, uh, you know, had, you know, a dozen beta testers and so forth. And uh, then we really... Real quick, are you, are you in uh, North Carolina? Right. I'm in, uh, I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yep. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> so I'm sorry. So you were saying, so you, you got your sister's friend. You contracted him for the music. Right. And so then that, that was basically the team. Uh, there was a lot of design insight and so mainly, you know, feedback on the things that I was doing, plus a few... You know, key design ideas came from you know my my alpha testers, um, dad, uncle, and uh, and uncle's colleague, and uh, you know, and then that was the team before the the one point release. Uh, the art was all from either free sources or stuff that I had uh, cobbled together, you know, myself. And uh, then post release, we've hired a uh, or contracted anyway a, an artist who uh, actually uh, Philippe Chabot. He lives in uh, um, Canada, actually. And, um, you know, he's been working full-time on the game and for Arkin since, uh, since August, basically. And uh, then we've got a guy who lives in the U.K., uh, Calvin Southwood, who's been doing, like, tech writing and helping out with, like, the forum management and stuff because the amount of feedback that I was getting is great, but it was kind of overwhelming me to the point of not being able to actually, you know, code, just spending time, you know, talking with players constantly, which is great to have that dialogue, but there needs to be a little bit of a buffer, so, you know, Calvin and uh, then another game designer friend of mine, uh, Lars Bull, have been kind of handling that, and I'm still intimately involved with the community and talk a lot, but I don't have to answer every last of the, you know, hundred things get posted a day, so. Well, you you did, you were doing some amazing work in terms of that sort of instant feedback. If someone would, would post something on a forum and you know, within within a couple of hours, you would be there answering questions, and and in some cases, even adding features in response to feedback from some far flung forum. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely, and that that's something we still 
you know do and i and i still keep an eye on you know inbound links and stuff and and try and, and be responsive uh you know the, the challenge that i have now is just one of volume more so than anything else if we have uh, i think my to-do list which is public so people can comment on things and and, and kind of the community can push things to the forefront of what they really want to see as a group. Uh, you know, it has way more on that potential to-do list than it could possibly ever do. I mean, it's like, you know, a couple of years' worth of work, and it grows faster than it shrinks. So it, for all intents and purposes, and it is a seemingly infinite list of, of things that might happen. So there's kind of that com- community mechanic now of, you know, if it's something that's really fast uh, or it's just like, Wow, why didn't I think of that? Then yeah, let's go on and do that right away. Or if it's something that's kind of a nice to have or, you know, growing the game in this particular way, then that kind of goes into the community pot and everybody talks about it. And then, uh, you know, I look at that as kind of waiting for what I actually decide to implement out of, you know, the, the hundreds of good ideas that are, that are sitting there waiting. So it's, it's been an evolving process, but I think it's managed to scale up pretty well without giving me a heart attack. So that's good. <laughs> so the, uh, the strange thing is you do this, this independent sci-fi game, but you said before the show, you're not a sci-fi guy, but you talk about Ender's games, one of your favorite novels. Uh, so why do a science fiction game, uh, and not have science fiction be one of your uh, patent gaming interests? Well, I really do like science fiction for, um, you know, reading and so forth. You know, I, I'm big into novels and so forth. And, I, you know, I, I like uh, quality science fiction and, uh, you know, movies and so forth as well. I guess... Um, you know, we were really more, in the context of our discussion, we were really discussing more science fiction strategy games, I, right. I felt. And um, as a science fiction fan, I guess there's just certain things that I kind of expected uh, of science fiction strategy games, and that never quite happened. Um, it, you know, so it's just kind of a disconnect from, you know, my larger interest in science fiction <clears throat> and what's actually available in in the genre, and I, and I guess what it boils down to is I, I really don't like trying to manage things in 3D, like Homeworld or so forth. You know, the you you wind up fighting the ca- I I should say wind up fighting the camera half the time, and I just never feel like I really have a good overview of what's going on. I, I enjoy 3D, uh, you know, action space games like uh, you know. Uh, Descent Free Space or some of those other you know older ones uh, I really liked, but uh, you know from a strategy game you know I want to feel like I can you know see what's going on and I really you know kind of grew up playing the more terrestrial uh, RTS games so that's just kind of where more my preferences lie or lay rather so uh, none of the the space based ones ever really felt right to me just because of my background it's it's purely a preference thing it's not a judgment against them but um i wanted a space-based rts game that felt like a terrestrial rts game uh and uh that was not out there because people who like space-based rts games want space-based rts game feel generally and uh you know thankfully that's not held true with you know like my customers but uh <laughs> Now, one of the things that uh, that happened after you initially released the game, there, there have been sort of these two uh, successive phases of development. You released the game. It was out there. And I'm real curious to hear, too, how those early days went and how it took off. But then at some point, you decided to hire, and you mentioned his name, I forgot. The, who, who's your artist again? It's uh, Philippe Chabot. 
Okay. You hired Philippe uh, to sort of do, uh, and this is, if I'm not mistaken, he sort of came in and did uh, sort of revamp the artwork. Is that correct? And there was sort of a second. Did you even call that 2.0? What? Uh, yeah, that was that was what we just released um, this uh, whatever past month anyway in October was our right. big 2.0 version. So yeah, we went through an iterative cycle, you know, geared towards a, a kind of quote final 2.0 release that was kind <laughs> of a a, a, a finished art revamp process so but then even there's a third phase coming up just a couple of days ago you announced an official expansion pack so right. it's sort of like you you launched and then there are these two huge updates that you've made so I, I first want to hear a little bit about when you first put the game out there you know you're an indie developer uh you've got this rts uh and it, it has a unique twist what do you do to get people to see it and notice it uh, and how did that work? Tell me a little bit about how that progressed. Because by the time I'd heard of it, I think you already had some really good buzz going. Uh, how did that happen? Um, well, very slowly at first. So we we first started out, um, you know, I, 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 and to qualify too, you know, I did absolutely zero advanced marketing whatsoever. And, and this was by design. You know, I, I looked at this and I said, well, what am I going to say to people? Uh, you know, they don't know me. They've never heard of me. They've never heard of Arcane Games. We're doing something really different. Uh, the graphics are not going to be what grabs people. Um, we need a, a demo that's you know solid, that's been all the way through beta, that's ready to go, etc. For you know people to be able to test it and, and see that they like it. So, you know, why am I going to tell people about this early when they're not? probably going to really get it or be impressed at that stage so let me just make this get this done and then we'll release and then we'll start doing marketing in the long term i think that worked out well as i had hoped it would in the short term of releasing when it came to i think it was uh, like may 14th or something like that um first two weeks um, zero sales, nothing, zero. Um, you know, we were. Really did, did you expect that, or is that demoralizing? Are you like, oh, this game is tanked, uh, or do you sort of expect that it's going to take a while before people start actually buying it? Well, I expected that it would take a while, although I had expected some sales. You know, so it, I wouldn't say it was demoralizing, but it was not a good sign. You know, uh, <laughs> and. You know, the main thing that was not – the main reason it wasn't demoralizing is that nobody was really looking at it. So it's like, well, nobody's buying it, but nobody has an opportunity to because nobody's talking about it. So it's like, well, let's see what happens when people actually find this. And, you know, I, I had uh, – you, you know, I've put out stuff in the past, uh, different, you know, fan levels and things like that. And so, you know, I have a pretty good feel for, had a pretty good feel at that point already for, you know, okay, well, it's going to take this many, you know, page hits is going to lead to this percentage of actual, you know, demo downloads and this percentage of demo downloads for most, in, you know, most indie games have like, from what I've read, you know, between one and 3% turnover rate or, or uh, conversion rate rather of, of uh, people who download the demo to actually people who buy it. So you know, right. if I've got if I've got you know a hundred downloads of the demo and no sales, this is not cause for concern. Uh, aside from the fact of we need people to know about it. So um, you know that was essentially the the situation there for the first two weeks. And uh, you know the indie the indie sites overall have pretty much given me the cold shoulder. 
um, for whatever reason. I, I really don't know why. Um, By indie sites, uh, you mean? Uh, you know, Game Tro- or not Game Trove. Um, you know, Game Tunnel has not ever said anything about it. Uh, you know, the Indie Games blog mentioned it very briefly, which was cool, but that was like their only thing. And uh, you know, uh, Byton obviously really liked the game and gave it 94% and called it the best game they'd seen that so far that year and stuff, which was great. But they were, you know, very much the exception as far as indie focused sites and uh, you know. All of our other, you know, press has come from more mainstream gaming-focused press, which if I had to choose one of the two, obviously that's the one I would choose, but I was just kind of baffled by, you know, seemingly being a bit rejected by the, the indie peers for I don't know exactly why. Um, it, it's just just silence. It's not like they're like, we don't like you. It's just, hey, here's some info, and then nothing. So, I well, Actually, know. could I venture a guess real quick, Chris? And I, I want to hear more about how, how you go from that stage. But sure. But it seems to me that you're, you've got here some fairly hardcore real-time strategy gameplay. Oh, yeah. Uh, th- this, is, this is a game that requires the kind of investment that somebody who's into, and not just RTSs. You have to be able to want to play an RTS kind of over the period of time that you would devote to a 4X strategy. I mean, the tutorial itself is, to be honest, a bit of a chore to work through. There's a lot of stuff to learn. Sure. Well, but but, but you ha- he, I think Chris has to do that. I mean, Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying the tutorial is you know, wasted time, but I mean, if this isn't a, a game you can just jump into. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And I think a lot of indie games put a premium on being immediately accessible, having some immediate clear hook. Uh, so in a way, I'm not surprised that that you kind of had a hard time uh, getting much attention from them. You know, it's the hardcore guys like us who really dig what you're doing. I think. Um, right. Absolutely. And it, it's it's one of those things where though you see them mention, okay, hey, there's this indie game that's coming out, and it looks kind of hardcore, but we haven't really played it. Or because you know there are other strategy games that are out there. You've got Project Aftermath, or you've got Light of Voltaire, and so forth. And you know, uh, to a certain extent, those ones are a lot more accessible. They're a lot more either mainstream or conventional in a lot of ways, uh, with you know some unique twists. But it's something that comes about through gameplay that's more familiar from the get-go, at least. And um, so. That uh, was just kind of a surprise to just get no response. Uh, whatever, I, it doesn't really bother me. It doesn't matter. I'll still, uh, you know, I plan to make some other, you know, indie games that are more indie gameish, not right. strategy games. But, but so, uh, what happens know. after that? After that, you sort of get the cold. You're not getting a lot of traction from these indie sites. Uh, what then right. happens next? Well, um, the big break was. Uh, Stardock's Impulse, you know, I'd submitted to all the big uh, indie, uh, or all the big uh, digital distribution sites and heard back from a couple early on that kind of then dropped off the radar uh, until much, much later that we actually then circled back around and got on their platforms. But uh, Impulse, uh, one of the staff guys there, obviously Impulse has a huge strategy selection in general and, uh, you know, Stardock is obviously very much into strategies also. So one of their staff members uh, saw the uh, saw the game in the, the forums there and uh, then ex- basically accelerated it through the process, said, this is awesome, we should put it on there, so they did. And then once it came out on Impulse, you know, that's a, a pretty big audience there. And so immediately we started getting some 
sales through that. And uh, so you know, that was basically in uh, you know in May. I think we probably had you know something like you know fifty some sales total there because we got on impulse like right at the, the right at the end of May, like May twenty six or something. So you know it's like okay, finally some traction. You know we're at least not one of those indie games. It's just a complete financial failure. It's past that point. Hooray! Um, so you know June we continued to grow, and I in in mainly to be honest. A lot of that growth came about from when anybody would talk about it, I'd go and you know make sure and kind of chaperone the conversation to a certain extent of okay. not to say, you know, you guys say what you're going to say, but I want to make sure that there's not misinformation getting out there, which obviously often would happen where yeah. somebody would have a wrong impression and they would say this as fact and then it's totally not true. Something is there, it's just missing or whatever. And you know, so I would join the conversation, clear up any misunderstandings. You know, as you said, if there was features that uh, needed to be implemented based on that, you know, do those implementations and then give them a pre release and that was always a big hit and so forth. So, you know, started getting some some good buzz in various forums, quarter to three and uh, gamers with jobs and otherwise uh, as well. And kind of on on from there, uh, then we did a big you know discount sale with Impulse in, in late June and that kind of stepped it up another notch to where you know that really drove sales in a bigger way than we'd seen before ever. And, uh, you know, everybody loves those discount sales. And, um, you know, from, from that point onwards with Impulse, we had a, a higher volume of sales. And, you know, then it's just kind of stair-stepping upwards. You know, each little success that we have, leverage that into something else. You know, trying to get bigger viewers to take a look at it, which requires saying, hey, you know, these other people thought it was worthwhile to take a look at, so maybe you want to look at it too. And, um, you know, eventually... Uh, getting on Steam through them seeing us hitting the number two best-selling slot on Impulse for a while, you know, behind Demigod and stuff like that. And uh, so it was one of those things where it was just clawing the way up the entire way through and and constantly putting out, you know, the new pre-releases uh, with fan-requested uh, content and just being really active and engaged and, and building a reputation for that. And so, you know, some people will support an indie developer out of principle or out of, you know, liking them personally as far as the way that they do business and the way they treat their customers wanting to support that. And then, you know, some people just fall in love with the game and then evangelize, which is super helpful. And, uh, you know, eventually the reviews come and it's just, it's a long process. It was way longer of a process than I thought it would be. And the end result was that I got where I wanted to go. But, uh, you know, I never would have dreamed that it would take, you know, five, six months to do that after releasing the game. <laughs> so, what I would have, the- but on the design level, uh, the business side of independent games is fascinating. When I go back to the design level of AI war, and one of the great things about it that I love, is the threat level mechanic. Mm-hmm. How uh, you have to expand to win, but you expand too quickly, you know, you get screwed completely uh, because the AI responds to it, etc. It reminded me a lot of the colonization mechanic, where... Uh, ah, good call. Where the home country, you, you could always track how strong it's getting, how big a threat it thinks you of being as for declaring independence. Uh, why go that way? Well... It was a very um, convenient mechanic for forcing some actual higher-level thinking. I guess 
um, one of my, you know, I, I had some various non-real-time influences, such as my love of chess, uh, if, if not my proficiency at it anyway, but, uh, and then also, you know, my affection for Civilization IV. And, and one thing that those turn-based strategy games have in common is that uh, you can only do so much in a given turn, right? So that means that there's a huge opportunity cost for anything that you do. Um, and that's not something that you see very often in a real-time strategy game of, of any sort, right? It's because the opportunity cost is fairly low. If, if you can um, fight efficiently or if you can uh, – you know, divide and conquer. You know, divide and conquer, or just over overwhelm your opponent, or you know, do other kind of tricky things, even like turtling for a while and then kind of booming out of there. Things that only exist in a real time strategy context. Um, you can kind of get away from the opportunity costs that are there, and uh, and, and and essentially skew the gameplay in, in in any RTS game by not having to really meet it on its terms of, well, I'm taking this, so I therefore I couldn't take that, and so forth. And so what I wanted was something that was reactionary to the player's actions. So again, kind of letting them have the tempo a bit of expanding at the rate that they want without ever having to feel like they're being rushed, because, you know, I don't like feeling rushed in a strategy game, but at the same time, I also don't like feeling like things are moving on on moving in molasses so you want them to be able to set the tempo they want i'm going to expand when i'm good and well ready to and then i want to be able to do it then i don't want to have to then wait you know so letting them set the tempo uh, the pace themselves um but uh my tendency is to turtle so i wanted some a reason to expand so i wouldn't be able to just turtle and then and then burst out and, and be victorious based on that and then um by contrast, you know, not having, you know, just pell-mell rushing and so forth. So I wanted to essentially uh, uh, mitigate the effects and the benefits of both rushing and turtling <laughs> and make for a more moderate strategy where you have to actually, uh, you know, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction in, in a certain sense of uh, – there is a huge opportunity cost. Okay, you take this. Great. Now there's a penalty for taking this. And uh, and so if the penalty was worth it, you made a great choice. Hooray. If the penalty was not worth it, what are you, what are you even doing? Why are you just taking territory to take territory? You know, uh, you need to think this through. You need to take places that actually further your goals rather than just taking everything in sight. And you know, I felt like that was a real – Something that bothers me about a lot of RTS games, I, I, I love the mechanics, but a lot of times it boils down to me either learning some sort of rote pattern eventually and then just optimizing the speed on that or, you know, booming and turtling or, you know, a, a rush to get to certain points on the map and, and win based off of that. You know, all these kind of patterns that you see over and over and over and over again in strategy games, real-time strategy games, and I wanted to break away from all of those. And to do that, there had to be kind of this penalty system, and so that's where that came from. Now, you kind of let players play it without like, with the difficulty setting. Uh, it, it's perfectly... Players can jump into this and just play it like snowballing out into a big universe, playing it like any RTS. Uh, like there's that tricky balancing act with the difficulty where there's a sweet spot based on your skill 
and the design you're trying to create. Uh, and it seems like that's one of the problems that some people have with the game, is if they play it when it's too easy, then it is just a game where you're snowballing and you roll over the AI. Uh, so that's probably, I imagine, been a challenge for presenting this game to people. How do you make sure they play it on the difficulty level where the design comes through? Right, absolutely, and and the AI is is markedly stupider at the lower levels too. Uh, you know, the game was defaulting to difficulty one, which the AI does like intentionally moronic stuff, like <laughs> sending its stuff against your best defenses, intentionally suiciding itself, you know, and stuff like that. Because that's a sandbox mode. I mean, it's meant to be for you know my mom to be able to play it. She doesn't game, you know, and uh, so why design it for your mom? She's not going to play it. Well. I'm not, I mean, you know, you, I want to, you know, that's one of ten different gradations, right? So that way, if there's somebody that just wants to get in there and play around with mechanics, having a sandbox mode, right? in, in essence, uh, you know, and, and the main, uh, you know, modes are, you know, difficulty seven, probably for most kind of experienced uh, real-time strategy players, and that's where the AI is, you know, unconstrained and as nasty as it can be, Um so, yeah, I mean, that really was a challenge where people get in there and they go, well, this AI is not that good. What's, what's the deal? What, I don't <laughs> understand what you're saying. You know, it's like, well, if you play on difficulty three, yeah, it's not. Um, <clears throat> the uh, So part of that was just adjusting tooltips in the lobby. And honestly, since we did that, I've had almost, I won't say none, but almost no incidences of, of that because, you know, we have a little kind of fast facts thing that we give out and I say, you know, the real game begins at difficulty seven. And so what generally happens here instead, uh, before they would come out too easy and then it snowballs and it's like, well, this isn't interesting. On the converse side, now they start on difficulty seven. If they're a good RTS player, they can probably hold their own at least for a while. If they're a moderate strategy game player, um, or, or downward from there, it's probably going to kick their butt. and uh, But it does so in an interesting way. And so they, they look at this and they go, wow, I just lost, but that was kind of cool. Um, that was neat how I lost. And so some people will go, well, let me just play this again and see if I can win. Or they say, well, I lost by a lot. Let me down at difficulty five and I'll be comfortable there. You know, They kind of self-tune that way. But what has just been fascinating for me to see how People are able to self-tune down comfortably without complaining because they, whatever, it's just, I guess, how their mind works and, uh, you know, all of our minds work. But they're not able to self-tune up. They just give up as, well, this game is not good if it's, <laughs> if it's, if it's too easy at the start. So that's, that's been a really interesting uh, challenge. But um, honestly, that intermediate tutorial that's so long that you're talking about, they were talking about, that also has been really a prime selling tool for us as well because, you know, I get so many emails and forum posts from people saying, well, you know, you know, I just knew I had to get it once I was partway through that tutorial or whatever, you know, the people that get really passionate about the game, you know, they know they love this game before they even see the AI at work because of the game mechanics being so different and, and that being exposed to that intermediate tutorial. Um, you know, and there are others that pick it up after that, but they're not the ones that are quite so excited about it. So it's been interesting. What, is, what's, what has been some of the surprising feedback that you've gotten? Like, for instance, Chris, you and I had a little bit of back and forth about uh, the interface for how you display 
what ships are in a given uh, system. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, called a planet, a system, whatever the node is. Uh, sure. You have a display along the side of the screen, and you and I had some sort of feedback, and, and you know, you incorporated some of the ideas. You explained, uh, I thought very clearly, why you didn't do things certain ways. So obviously, uh, you get a lot of ideas thrown at you uh, from people like me and uh, your other players and whatnot. What have been some of the most surprising things that you've heard about your game? Um, gosh, I have such a diverse set of, uh, I mean, you know, it's, I, I get suggestions on everything from, you know, AI stuff to interface stuff to various game design things. And I guess nothing really surprises me all that much just because you get so many people with so many different backgrounds and people play all, you know, there are, are you know, thousand strategy games out there, and, and everybody's played different ones. And so they take whatever expectations they have from the, the past games that they've played and apply that to every future game that they come to. <laughs> and so you wind up with, uh, you know, oh, well, I was confused by this because Sins of the Solar Empire used something kind of vaguely similar to mean something else. It's like, well, okay. Okay, well, what do I do with that? You know, to some extent, I try and make that, you know, as clear as possible of what's going on. But, you know, there's a certain amount with any game where you have to meet it on its own terms. And, for instance, for me, with Sins of the Solar Empire, clearly that didn't happen for me. It's a great game. Everybody loves it. But I wasn't able to meet it on it meet it on its own terms, so it didn't work out for me. Maybe if I stuck it out, it it, would have. It wasn't a great game for you. Well, maybe if I'd stuck it out more, it would have. Maybe if I had, you know, actually put more time, you know, I put about a half an hour into it and it lost me. If I had put more time into it, maybe I would have said, well, this is the greatest thing since last bread. I honestly don't know. And, I, you know, I have to kind of weigh certain feedback in the same sort of way. If everybody's not going to love my game just because it's not whatever other game they do love – So I get certain things that are kind of out there like that. But then I've also got a lot of cool things that, you know, for turn-based strategy players, I've gotten some things where it's like, well, you know, it really bothers me that when I pause the game, uh, the music stops and it darkens, you know, Ah. uh, because I have a thing where you can issue orders during uh, during that mode. But uh, it also bugged them. You couldn't see the the feedback from that. So it's like, okay, well, you know, I hadn't really designed this with turn-based strategy players in mind. But being a sometimes turn-based strategy player myself, I could see the appeal of what they're doing. They want to basically pause it, do stuff, unpause it, and watch what happens, and then pause it when they're ready to you know think and give some orders again. Right. And so by you know have a whole little section in the settings now that's you know turn-based strategy options basically that makes it more turn-based friendly. And some of those actually became defaults through that. So you know that kind of helped it evolve into a turn-based friendly uh, uh, game much more so than I'd anticipated. And um, and I guess one thing that really has surprised me is the way that people play this online. Um, the uh, th- I, This is the big one that surprised me, actually, now that I think about it. Um, so I figured, okay, this is a game people will play it solo. Most people play strategy games solo or, you know, the, the minority that play, you know, competitive uh and then there's, you know, probably some people like my playgroup that want to play cooperatively with their friends, right? Their whatever their playgroup is, they know the people they play on a regular schedule, or they can arrange to do so, and then they will play. 
um, with a really long form game, like for instance, Civilization Four or this or any other four X game, you know, you're going to have to have that sort of scheduling, right? So, I, I never felt like matchmaking was something that was really uh, a missing feature per se. Yeah, it's not there, and yeah, a lot of other strategy games have it, but. Are you really going to use that? Do you want to be auto-matched with somebody for a 12-hour game? How is that even going to work, you know? <laughs> so people were wanting to be matched even for a longer-form game. Right. And what that's what's been surprising me, especially more recently since the Steam release. Um, you know, our, our, our player base, you know, since we came out on Steam and partly through the uh, impulse sale that we did as well. With, there was a lot of promotion around 2.0 in general. So really, I should right. say, since our 2.0 release, um, you know, our player base was already fairly substantial before that, you know, into the you know, uh, quadruple digits, but uh, it uh, uh, essentially tripled in a week there. Hmm. And um, so, I mean, that was you know, very successful for us. And with that larger, you know, this humongous influx of new players, a lot of them say, oh, I don't have anybody to play co-op with, but I want to play co-op with somebody. And so, um, you know, we've got an IRC channel for that. We've got a Steam group for that. We've got an X-Fire group. We've got a forum on our site. And all these different ways for people to kind of, you know, meet and, you know, matchmake and kind of say, well, time zone, when when are you available to play? You know, how can we set up a, you know, an ongoing, you know, weekly game? And I think that that, you know, is a pretty good mechanic for doing that. It's not as automatic as the matchmaking, but it kind of needs to be a little bit asynchronous to a certain extent. So at any rate, people through this process have started arranging, you know, four and six player uh co-op games with people they don't know cross-continent and playing and being successful with that. And, you know, one of the things that I had to uh, incorporate before 2.0 was uh, that when somebody dropped, mysteriously never came back out of one of these games, you know, they wanted to be able to continue and either, uh, you know, divide up that person's stuff or replace that person with uh, a new additional player, and we also had instances of where two people started a game and they wanted to then, uh, you know, the third person showed up on the forums that, you know, they know from other contexts and they just have bought the game and they want uh, to be able to add that person in without having to restart this game they're six hours into and they're six hours from finishing, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, adding in those sorts of capabilities was something that, again, I had never thought would be... Uh, really desired and used but you know it came about and that's been really uh, a much loved addition and just to my great surprise um i I never would have designed it that way and uh but now it almost seems like a kind of duh model for if anybody else does an rts co-op in the future these are the features that you need to have you know these have been kind of battle tested at this point and they weren't obvious before but now it's like how could this possibly work without these features? And, you know, that's the benefit of, of, of doing things post-release because the customers revealed things that, you know, I, I would never have anticipated. So, You know what I think you're tapping into there, Chris, is a little bit of uh, this sort of new wave in, in shooters to play cooperatively. 
I mean, it's I, I haven't tried AI War uh, multiplayer, and, and now I'm thinking, well, yeah, of course, this makes sense. It sounds like very much the same kinds of things people want to do in, like, Gears of War 2's Horde mode or the new right. firefight mode in, in Halo. Uh, yeah. Uncharted 2 just came out. It has a similar mode. And even even Left 4 Dead, you know, it's it's four human players against the, the AI. It, it sounds like AI War is kind of unique among strategy games for feeding into that desire to sort of band together with other players and fight this hostile horde. Uh, so, and, and so... so 2.0 does support these features that you're talking about. Somebody can be six hours into a game and invite his bud to join him. Yep, absolutely. Um, and the way that works, in order to keep it balanced, is when when the buddy joins in, they have nothing. They're basically in kind of spectator mode, and mm-hmm. they're entirely dependent on the existing players to give them some stuff. <laughs> and and the, the game, so so you give them a couple of planets, and then. Uh, you know, get their economy started with whatever you can essentially spare, and then it moves onwards from there. And if somebody needs to leave, then everybody can control that player's stuff. So it still shows up as their color. You know, they're gone, and if they're going to be back next week, then you just leave them their stuff, and you can manage their stuff as a team, just like you manage your own stuff, until they get back, and then they take it over again and, you know, you continue as if nothing happened. Um, or you can swap in another player, or you can say, well, they're never coming back. We don't want a replacement player, so we'll just divvy up their stuff amongst ourselves and, <laughs> you know, go on from there. And um, so, yeah, those those were features that kind of came about, you know, latently um, through this kind of iterative design and kind of community feedback process. And uh, you're right. I think it really does tap into the shooters are certainly one place where that really comes out a lot. But, you know, there's sites like Cooptimus, um, if you're familiar with them, that are, you know, entirely dedicated to co-op gaming and, uh, you know, reviewing those games that are co-op and, um, you know, looking at... uh, upcoming games to see which ones have co-op, so therefore which ones you can play. And, you know, I'm big into that. I've been, all these years I've been playing RTS games, I've played some solo, but then, and I've dabbled in in PvP in the past, but uh, I've always played cooperatively. You know, you just set up a skirmish, and you've got your three, four players, and you set up three, four AIs, and you play against them, and that's your cooperative game. And as you can imagine, that's kind of... uh, that gets kind of limiting. Uh, it, it works for a while, and it's quite fun. It's, it's a great way to enjoy a lot of strategy games, but uh, it, in the end, it kind of bottoms out because the AI is not good enough, or right. uh, the, the design is just not built for having that many players on the size maps you might want, or whatever. You know, they're right. really a lot of those geared towards one or two players doing quicker games, not longer for, form games. So. So, yeah, I mean, those, those were definitely the motivations for me. So you said that in the first couple of weeks you sold zero copies. Mm-hmm. But since then, have you been happy with the way sales have been progressing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you Could know, you give us an estimate? The, yeah, we're in the, we're in the um, quadruple digits on sales, not, uh, not quite to the quintuple yet. The, um, but, you know, we're up there in the, in the whatever, heavyweight, indie numbers uh, group anyway. We're, we're past the point of being kind of a middleweight, which is nice, but we're not kind of in that stratospheric world of goo type, you know, braid. Right. Are you trying to tell yeah, us yeah. that you're not, you're not driving a Ferrari yet, Chris? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's to the point where um, 
Is that is that at the point where you think this is a career for you? Yes, I, I think that uh, it's looking like a, a viable thing. You know, my my background is in business software, and that's what I've been doing for you know seven eight years now. And you know, there's been some aspects of that that I've really liked. You know, I've worked at a small company, and you know, we've built the product that you know, we're proud of, and you know, et cetera. But um, you know, at the same time, you kind of run to the end of what you can really do creatively with that after a certain point and I, and I kind of feel like I've hit that stage um, you know architecturally speaking anyhow so the um, we're at just the point now since our 2.0 release where it looks like I'll be able to switch in myself and the composer um, coming on full time joining the artist is you know basically doing this full time arcing games uh hopefully starting in december that's you know assuming our sales numbers hold in the the wake of our all of our promotion and stuff which they seem to be um you know we should be uh basically cost positive or at least cost neutral with a you know enough buffer cash from the uh whole 2.0 release thing where we can you know survive through creating our expansions and our other games that are coming up and uh you know be on a growth track from there so it's not kind of a dream scenario where you've got you know all this buffer money where you can just kind of sit back and do games at the pace that you want to do them at with kind of infinite testing and whatever else you know but it's uh it's a case where we're self-funded, we don't have any debt, we don't have any, uh, you know, outside investors of any sort or publisher relationships that we have to, you know, that make us creatively encumbered and, and so forth. So it makes us, you know, very independent, which is nice. And, um, you know, we're not going to squander the opportunity like an, not to point any fingers, but some indie developers, I'm like, you know, if I'd had your financial success you know, where are the next follow-up games to, to, you know, the success that you had and then you blew it afterwards by not making more games, getting sucked down in, in ports and I don't know what you did for, <laughs> you know, so many years and, and they're looking at their stuff saying, what did we do? When you have some success, you cannot view it as something that is going to continue. You have to plan for failure to a certain extent and, and have some sort of buffer and, uh, you know, design for success, plan for failure, and then, yeah. you know, know what you need to do to rebound from from that failure. And I think AI War, in some respects, is a good example of that because, you know, our 1.0 version was successful but not wildly so. Uh, you know, the graphics were not as well as they could have been, and uh, some of the gameplay mechanics certainly got refined to a very great degree afterwards, uh, yeah. you know, Little irritations add up and annoy people enough to not want to do it. But when they see those little irritations, you know, if I had known little irritations were there, I wouldn't have released it in that state. You know, when I released it, it was everything that uh, it needed to be as far as I could tell and as far as our testers could tell. But then when the, the public gets it, and I think, you know, any developer runs into this with their expectations or just not having the history with the game, you know, through all the whole testing cycle, you know, they find stuff that you didn't find. So you gotta develop you know, devote the time to uh you know, fixing that stuff and then they're happy and then they like it and then the game is more successful than it otherwise would have been and um so that's kinda a matter of, you know, planning for that failure of okay, you know, we're gonna fail if we don't fix these issues for people when they come up and uh you know, now we're taking the process of instead of uh 
doing that after release, I really don't want to go through another six month, you know, post release process with other products. I don't think that's, you know, a very, a very viable way to do things long term if we're, you know, needing to make money and not just really rolling in it. Uh, so instead, we're getting the community involved early and let having early uh, demos that are free for anybody while we're still in alpha and having um, uh, people who pre-order being able to get full access to the alpha. And we've got enough of a real devoted fan base where, you know, we can make triple-digit sales on that sort of pre-order. And they're happy to test and they get their name in the credits because, you know, they provide these various ideas. And we always credit every idea to whoever, you know, came up with it and uh, you know bug even bugs that they find we credit those and so they're they're happy because they're a part of it and you know how many times do you go to a developer and uh you know you say hey I don't like this and then if it makes sense they actually change it you know so it's that sort of process if if any if other developers could see the sort of success we're able to derive from that as far as just from improvement and then therefore improvement in scale of sales I think they would do it. Uh, you know, you have to eat a lot of humble pie to do it. Uh, <laughs> but after a while, you get really used to that. And the stuff that used to really give me a hard time kind of emotionally when I was first starting out with this, just kind of like, you know, par for the course now. It's like, you know, I don't even notice. It's just that's feedback. And is it viable or not? It goes in the yes bucket or the no bucket or the maybe bucket, you know, and, and we go from there. But uh, you, have a, you have an expansion on the way. This yeah. is, right. You've already announced this. Tell us about what... Uh, so there's 1.0, 2.0 was a few months ago, a month ago, and when is this expansion coming up and what can we expect? Um, the expansion should be coming out in January, um, barring any sort of development issues that make us push it back because we, a, a, we don't have a hard date set in the sense that if there's a quality issue, we just have to go, sigh and go, oh, well, well, we'll release it anyway. So you know, we like to stay real flexible with that. But you know, I think we'll... Uh, really be done with it in early December and then just for kind of marketing reasons uh, delay actually releasing it until January which mm -hmm. gives us an extra QA buffer and uh, it's already out now as far as um, pre-release goes so you can pre-order it if you want to uh, you can play the public demo and we've got you know people that have already bought it or who are already playing it and um, it's basically a matter of um, the, the, the prime focus in this is really kind of uh, the grand strategic aspects, um, giving more different kind of capturables uh, and positive and negative things about different planets that uh, basically more different pros and cons that are out there. You know, normally you've got advanced factories, advanced research stations that you want to go capture and, you know, data centers you want to go capture. And then there's various bad things that you want to avoid, like the super fortresses that are out there or um, – you know, captive human settlements, which can be positive or negative depending on the situation, and usually you want to avoid them, but sometimes you want to capture them, and things like that. You know, there's a handful of those things. There's maybe um, 10 different types of units that are kind of create that uh, grand strategic landscape, a lot of a lot of the more interesting, longer-term complexity to it versus kind of the, the simpler... Uh, Mechanics that uh, that you see right at the start of you know resources here versus their knowledge and that sort of thing. So um, this is introducing some new kind of super ships that are got these golems that you can uh, capture and there are these and then rebuild at uh, great enragement of the AI and then you use <laughs> them and they're really powerful. But the more you use them, the more you piss the AI off as well. So there's this real interesting and I think. 
again a never before seen kind of risk reward with these where they're they're you know a lot of times you got these strategy games and you have these super weapons that aren't all all that super really and uh that's always kind of a disappointment we're like well they're fun but you know they're so well balanced that you know they're not really a super weapon um sometimes they are but uh here they're a super weapon they feel like it but that ai progress to the rescue of um you know, you're using a super weapon effectively, hooray, but in doing so, the AI's estimation of you is, is skyrocketing. If it's going, yeah, they're, you know, they're scaring me. I'd better do something about them. Go kill, kill, you know. And so you, uh, that kind of rageometer, as some people have called it, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> is, is a nice, makes a nice counterpoint. So once again, coming back to that kind of equal and opposite reactions, you know, you, you use a super weapon against a, a superior foe. You know, if you're a terrorist and you detonate a uh, nuclear weapon in the U.S., you can do a lot of damage, right? But you're going to really piss off a humongous country, and it's going to have repercussions. So you better be prepared to deal with that. And insofar as it goes, you are kind of an insurgent type thing. You're, you know, the humans versus the people, the AIs that have taken over the galaxy. So you've got these super weapons, but be prepared to, to reap the consequences of using them as well. And um, you know, so it has that. It's got a bunch of other new ships, a bunch of new different ship classes that uh, kind of add to the strategic mix and so forth. The the base game had 24 different types. This is adding around uh, 12. Um, and really, nice. kind of the point of those. Go ahead. I'm saying nice. That's good. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, so really, kind of the point of those is. Um, one other thing that's kind of unique about AI War is that uh, it's really a lot of different kind of games in one. Like normally, you have with a strategy game. Uh, let's say chess. Um, it is a real simple example, obviously, but you've got a certain number of pieces, and those pieces interact in certain ways, and you've got a you drive a, an incredible amount of complexity out of those interactions, obviously. Um, and especially with a turn-based game, um, you don't really need a whole lot of different pieces to have a whole bunch of different types of interesting, complex uh, interactions. But when you start getting into real-time stuff, um, a lot of times. Um, it moves too fast for you to really be able to explore too much complexity with a limited piece set. Um, By contrast, if you have too large of a piece set, it has the opposite problem of uh, you get analysis paralysis, players wind up using just too small of a set of it and just just what they like, and uh, so then all that extra complexity is either wasted or is a negative of just kind of bogging down the game. So what AI War does is it has this huge variety of different things, but it subsets it in every game in a unique way. So that's kind of lets you get the best of both worlds. The the the, the you have these two kind of uh, um, counterbalanced uh, problems that I kind of felt like with other RTS games uh, of either there's too few things to do and therefore every game feels the same bad. Or uh, you've got too much stuff to do, and you can never decide on what to do. So you find a, a, a favorite thing to do, and then you just do that, and every game winds up feeling the same bad. So, um, you know, obviously you can still derive a lot of enjoyment out of an RTS game in that way. Um, you know, it takes a while before even doing the same thing, you know, before you exhaust all the possibilities with that. But after a while, you do, and it therefore doesn't really morph into a really long form type thing like for instance with chess you know people are still playing that game and it's interesting every time because they can do different things every time and um you know obviously that's 
being turn-based and so forth, it has certain advantages that real-time doesn't. But uh, the point being that I wanted to kind of capture some of that in a real-time context by making it so that you have a smaller set of pieces so that it's something you can manage and you can legitimately use all of your pieces um, without just falling back on favorites, but that every game that you come to, you get a different mix so that every game doesn't feel like it's just the same and you have to kind of analyze the current situation that the the ships that you have available are kind of part of the scenario. So the possibilities that those open are kind of multiplicative, as you might imagine. Um, so... That's another focus for the expansion is adding in these new ship classes that have different abilities and styles of play and this, that, and the other. And that, in turn, expands the scope of the game. So, um, you know, and there's some other scope-expanding things that we're doing, but uh, um, it's it's all basically driving towards, uh, you know, greatly increasing variety and uh, enhancing the grand strategic aspects and, uh, you know... And now are you, are, you selling, are you selling the expansion? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Does it have a right. name? The, yes, it's the, the Zenith Remnant. So AI War Fleet Command is the base game, and then AI War the Zenith Remnant. Uh, so Zenith, <laughs> I presume, is like an alien race, and these are the remnants of it. Right, 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 exactly. So you're picking up some kind of older technology from them that's way more powerful, though, and so that kind of feeds in with kind of the capturables thing. Right. You can go out and find this alien technology and then use it and... You know, there's so pros and cons to doing it. The, so the basic game is is just uh, is it's twenty dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that includes two point oh. Like you you sell two point oh for twenty dollars. And uh, what price point are you selling Zenith Remnant for? Um, that's going to be. Uh, it was originally going to be twelve ninety five, but then recently we've decided to down that price to nine ninety nine instead, just because um, there's kind of a mental gap, there, sure. you know, leap that people make there. So it's going to be nine ninety nine for that. Um, we are still doing. Um, we do monthly free DLC that basically has, you know, bug fixes, enhancements, um, balance tweaks, etc., and uh, also um, usually one new ship or AI behavior or something of that sort. And so we we put out uh, monthly free DLC um, for customers of the base game on upwards, and that is going to continue even after the expansion. So the the what we're kind of figuring is that uh, we'll probably keep doing the free DLC for a long time, you know, two to five years, depending on how long people are interested. If it, you know, forms a long-term community, which it seems to be doing, um, then I think that's probably how long it will last, is it, at least in that neighborhood. And then we're planning on putting out um, paid expansions every um, eight to 10 to 12 months, depending on, you know, player interest there as well. But, you know, We've got a, a you know a growing core community that wants more and more and more always, and uh, which is great. And so that's kind of the two ways that we're going about giving that is through the, the ongoing free DLC that anybody can use without ever buying anything with a base game, and then expansions for those people who want you know large chunks of content that expand it in certain ways. Now I noticed by by positing this Zenith Remnant, uh, the things that. Uh, I sort of felt was a little bit lacking in the original game was this sense of uh, of setting. Right. Uh, and and remember you explaining to me, Chris, I forget what you said, but why the opponents are called AI one and AI two. Like you don't give them names like the you know the Gore Collective and the, the Kraken yeah. Confederacy. Uh, so so is that something that you're dealing with with the expansion? Is trying to sort of give the universe more of a sense of setting? Well. 
in some ways, certainly with the Zenith aliens, we're giving more of a sense of setting with that. Um, there are a lot of there. There are some people who have have complained about the lack of sense of setting, but I've had just as many people, if not more, honestly, comment on the fact that oh, I felt like I was playing Battlestar Galactica, or gosh, this was just like Ender's Game, or man, I felt like I was on a board cube doing this, that, and the other, or whatever, <laughs> pick your favorite sci-fi thing, right? So I left it kind of generic on purpose because I felt like, okay, this is a skirmish mode type of game except long form. It's not meant to tell a story. I mean, it, my background is, uh, you know, I... I basically also a failed novelist in, in essence and so I, I have uh, uh, quite an affinity for writing but that said I didn't feel like any sort of kind of generic scenario that I might come up with even not you know completely generic but I mean um, you know a lot of RTS settings are not exactly great literature or all that interesting. They're kind of derivative of a lot of the more popular science fiction shows, etc. You know, but, you know, so I feel like they almost kind of detract because they make me go, well, that's kind of that's kind of low rent there in the middle <laughs> of this nice game. That's, that's not a real nice story you got going there and you know, your guys have awful dialogue and, you know, whatever, you know, it, it just becomes kind of a detractor for me. Yeah, it's got setting, but it's not all that great. Um, obviously, there are some standout examples of where there's awesome setting. Um, but for me, I was looking for something that would kind of evoke a bunch of different settings and kind of the gameplay itself kind of creates a story that maybe matches up with something from the you know the player's past or doesn't or you know creates some kind of story in their mind you know as they go um you know and i think it's been pretty successful in that regard some people that, that want more of a story have definitely complained about that um the zenith give it more personality i think in expansion and that's certainly i wanted to have a theme with the expansion something cohesive about that that's you know, beyond just the base game. And I think it's important that each expansion have a theme and a bit of a story to go along with it and something that something that is kind of unique and a bit of a story there. But uh, it shouldn't necessarily, you know, make you feel that it's not Battlestar Galactica anymore or something, you know, if that's what you're imagining it to be, you know. Um, so some other games that I do will really focus heavily, heavily on story. I just don't feel like that necessarily belongs in RTS. I mean, that's, that's my personal opinion, but, right. uh, you know. <laughs> uh, well, Chris, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Great to get some insight into the indie uh, strategy development scene. Um, any final words for your fans? Well, just, uh, you know, thanks for letting us uh, do this because... You know, they're the ones that fund us. We're the only measure of success we have is based off of the fans. And I've been really, I had been really unsure if I was going to be able to make a living doing this. And it looks like it. And, uh, you know, I couldn't be more grateful. So I'm happy to give back with the DLC and everything else. So it's been a really good partnership with the, the growing fan base. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to Zenith Remnant. And, um, once again, thanks for joining us. A couple of editorial points. Uh, first of all, in Flash of Steel, which this is the official podcast of, I'd like to remind our, re- our listeners that uh, we have begun our look back through the last decade. We already have two essays up, one from me and one from contributor Rob Zachney. And- 
Uh-huh. Was that you, Sean? <laughs> no, I had nothing to do with that wild cheering. Yeah. Uh, and Bruce Garrett, uh, my point is, I wrote an essay on Sacrifice for 2000, and Rob wrote one on Shogun Total War. Bruce Garrett will be giving his contribution once he uh, wakes up. He has some computer problems. <laughs> You're so mean. You're the meanest guy. Why did you play some Britney Spears with Bruce when I mentioned Bruce's name? Uh, which game is Bruce doing, Troy? Bruce will be talking about Combat Mission Beyond Overlord Ah, uh, for the year 2000, and he's promised he will get his essay to me quite promptly, but he's, of course, busier than I am at the moment. And I would like to uh, inform our readers, that our listeners, that in three weeks' time we'll be doing a question and answer session. So if you have any questions for me or any of the other members of our panel, or criticisms or the like, I'll probably not read the criticisms, but you can send them along anyway. Uh, we'll be having a, a listener's question show in three weeks. That's the Monday. So make sure I get the uh, questions before the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So by November 22nd, please send in your questions for Tom or Julian or Bruce, or uh, that's pretty much it, I suppose. The, f- the three of us, the four of us, to one in particular, or all of us in general, we will be happy to answer your questions. Um, it's a holiday. Before the holiday weekend, why not? We can give thanks to our many wonderful listeners by answering any questions they might have. I've been getting many uh, through the months, and we'd like to have to dedicate a show to it. So do you have one of these like sound effect things now? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make Flash of Steel. Uh, we're gonna make three moves ahead, sort of like a morning zoo show right now. <laughs> I invite all of our listeners to listen to Tom's movie podcast at quarter to three, where he makes none of these noises. <laughs> but we do play Britney Spears. Yes, so. and I was kind of hoping for that. Only we don't have a three by three thing. It's a wonderful movie podcast. I can't recommend it more highly. Uh, I do suggest you watch the movies we're talking about before you listen. Otherwise, things will be spoiled. But he, a former CGM writer, uh, Kelly Wand, the man whose columns I always loved but never understood, and uh, Christian Moraski do a wonderful job in the movies so you can see Tom has a life outside of video games. Uh, Chris, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's awesome meeting you. (laughs) Good night, all. Likewise. Goodbye, everyone.